Hot 305. August 11, 2011. Midnight Blue by Will McIntosh. Welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your host and editor, Mer Lafferty. We're going to keep this short, as I'm suffering from some sort of summer plague. So we'll go right into our story, Midnight Blue, by Will McIntosh. Will is a psychology professor at Georgia Southern University and the father of young twins. Last year, he won the Hugo Award for his short story, Bridesickle, which you can hear on Escape Pod. His first novel, Soft Apocalypse, was published in April by Nightshade Books. His second novel, an urban fantasy titled Deadland, will be published by Nightshade in 2012. Our story is narrated by Escape Pod's own publisher, Paul Herring. Do I see a little crimson on that bookshelf? I think that gives me the power of story time. Midnight Blue by Will McIntosh He'd never seen a burgundy before. Kim held it in her lap, tapped it with her finger. She was probably tapping it to bring attention to it, and Jeff didn't want to give her the satisfaction of asking to see it, but he really wanted to see it. Burgundy, Kim had insisted on calling it Burgundy Red when she showed it at Show and Tell, was a rare one. Not as rare as a hot pink flyer or a Viridian better looking, but still rare. A bus roared up, spitting black smoke. It was the seven bus, the Linden Court bus, not his. Kids rushed to line up in front of the big yellow doors as the bus hissed to a stop. A second grader squealed, shoved a bigger kid with her Partridge family lunchbox because he'd stepped on her foot. All the younger kids seemed to have Partridge family lunchboxes this year. "'What did you say it did when you got all three pieces of the charm together?' Jeff asked Kim. He asked it casually like he was just making conversation until his bus came. "'It relaxes time,' Kim said." When you're bored, you can make time pass quickly, and when you're having fun, you can make time stretch out. Jeff nodded, just tried to look interested enough to be polite, but no more. What must it be like to make the hour at church fly by, or make the school day, except for lunch and recess, pass in an eye blink? Jeff wondered how fast or slow you could move things along. Could you make it seem like you were eating an ice cream sandwich for six hours? That would be sparkling fine. Want to see it? Kim asked. Okay, Jeff said, holding out his hands too eagerly before he remembered himself. Kim handed it to him, looking pleased with herself, the dimples on her round face getting a little deeper. It was as smooth as marble, perfectly round, big as a grapefruit, and heavy as a bowling ball. It made Jeff's heart hammer to hold it. The rich red, which hinted at purple while still being certainly red, was so beautiful it seemed impossible, so vivid it made his blue shirt seem like a Polaroid photo left in the sun too long. Imagine finding this in the wild, pushing over a dead tree and seeing it sitting there under the root, Jeff said. Yeah, right, Kim said. Not likely. She shook her long brown hair back over her shoulders. She did that all day long in class. She thought she was so gorgeous. A few of the other kids circled around to take a look. Jeff spun it around until he found the hole where it would be fitted into one side of the staff when someone got the whole charm together. Will your father try to get the other two pieces, do you think? Ricky Adamo asked, reaching to pet it once, probably just so he could say he touched one. He's only keeping this as an investment. Kim said, holding out her hands to take it back from Jeff, who passed it over, his fingers suddenly feeling much too light. My father's going to buy me a whole chartreuse to absorb when I'm 18. I'm going to be a doctor. He is not, Jeff said. Most of the chartreuse ones that have been found have already been absorbed. The ones that haven't, your father would have to give your whole house and everything in it just to get one sphere. What would you know about it, Kim said glaring. You don't even know what it feels like to absorb one. You've probably never even owned a sphere, let alone absorbed a whole charm. Cindy Schneider and Donna Ruiz laughed. Ricky laughed too, even though he'd never owned one either. I have two owned a sphere, Jeff said. I've owned dozens. 
Right, Cindy said. You must keep them under your bed at the garden apartments. Everybody laughed, except Ricky, who lived at the garden apartments too, and couldn't pretend he didn't. Kim took a pack of double bubble out of her bag. She shoved a piece into her mouth dramatically and chewed. Mmm, it's so delicious, she said. She showed Jeff her teeth and chewed some more. I'd offer you some, but it would just be wasting it. You couldn't appreciate it in the way I do because you haven't absorbed a sky blue charm. Watch this, Cindy said. She ran into the lawn in front of the school and spread her arms. Birds landed on them. Wrens, bluebirds, blackbirds, finches. Now just the yellow ones, she said. All but the yellow finches flew off. Four or five more finches landed. One landed on top of her head. The pretty yellow birds love me. She spun in a circle, her long blonde hair spraying outward. The birds held on, twirling brightly. Big whoop, Jeff said, turning back toward the parking lot. Of all the charms that kids at school had, he most wished he had a maroon animal charm. He loved animals way more than Cindy did. Just the other night, he had a dream about it. He dreamt he'd found all three pieces of an animal charm in the walls of the old car wash on Samsondale Road. He assembled it, grabbed hold of it, felt the charm go into him, and then he'd gone into the woods and called out, and a bobcat had come to him. The bobcat became his pet and went with him wherever he went. He took it to school, and it slept on the floor next to his desk. All the other kids watched as he leaned over and rubbed its ears. When he woke up and realized it was just a dream, the awful wave of disappointment had washed over him. Jeff laid in bed for two hours wishing it hadn't been a dream, until the sun came up and he had to get up for school. The Delwood bus came. Kim climbed on, holding her sphere, with Cindy and Donna right behind, all of them laughing and jabbering. Jeff sat on the bench next to Ricky. I hate those snobs, Ricky said. Yeah, me too, Jeff said. Their bus pulled into the parking lot. They think they're so great. On the way home, the bus driver drove right past their stop. Jeff and a half dozen other kids shouted for her to stop. Brakes squealed. The bus stopped in front of the ShopRite supermarket a few hundred yards past the garden apartments. Sorry, said the bus driver. Do we have to walk from here? David Zymet whined. Let the poor bastards walk, Mike Sass yelled from the back of the bus. Jeff could see a couple of the garden apartment kids turn and stare at Mike. If Mike was smaller, someone would go back there and beat the hell out of him, but he was big and fat. He threw the shot put on the track team. Jeff's mom came home at five, clutching a brown bag of groceries in one arm. Jeff clicked off the TV. Fred Flintstone shrank to a dot and disappeared. While Mom put the groceries away, looked like they were having cheeseburgers for dinner, he told her about the burgundy sphere Kim had brought to school. Your grandmother absorbed a burgundy sphere. She used to say that was one of her favorite powers. What does it feel like when you absorb one? Jeff asked. It's kind of hard to explain, Mom said. There's definitely something there that wasn't before. You feel that right away. Can you feel something alive going into you? Is it scary? I guess it should be, because you know something living is going into you when you absorb the charm, and it's going to stay there for the rest of your life, and you can sort of feel them. I always picture butterflies flying around inside you, and they're the same color as the charm. It's more subtle, though. When I close my eyes, she closed them, scrunched her eyelids in concentration, I can sense that there are little blips there, watching. But they're so quiet and harmless. They're just hitching a ride because they don't have their own bodies. They just want to live. Symbiotes, Jeff said, feeling a little proud that he knew the complex word. Mrs. Peters had taught it to them in science. That's right, Jeff. Very good. He went and sat at the old piano while Mom looked at the mail. He plunked a few keys. He liked the black keys. They sounded like the music from The Mummy and Dracula. How old were you when you got the musical charm? He called to Mom. Fifteen, she said. I found one of the spheres wedged between two big branches of a tree in the woods behind Grandma and Grandpa's cottage in Rhinebeck. Grandpa had to chop it free with an axe. I was hopping up and down, calling up to him to be careful. She sat down next to Jeff. He scooted over to give her room. She played Moon River softly. 
I went to a swap meet the next day and traded just about every piece I had for the staff and the other sphere to complete the charm. I knew T. Green was the musical charm, and the moment I saw that sphere up there in that tree, I knew I'd do anything to finish it. That was the most exciting thing that ever happened to me. What others did you find when you were a kid? Mom frowned, thinking. An orange pretty handwriting, a purple more outgoing. I found two blue-gray see-in-the-dark spheres, so I traded for the staff. That's the only reason it's one of the powers I have. She shrugged. Nothing rare. The musical was my best friend. I wish you could still find spheres and staves in the wild now. Freddie King had found a rust-brown good-with-machine staff last summer under the floor at his grandfather's hardware store. That had been something. I know. Remember the story I told you that your grandfather told me about the day they first appeared? Can you imagine waking up one morning and they're everywhere, hidden in drain pipes and under porch steps like Easter eggs? That would be great, Jeff said. It's not fair that people use so many of them up. How many did Grandpa absorb? Oh, boy, I don't know, maybe a dozen. He had better-looking, sense of smell, taste, singing, sensing patterns. He didn't have any of the rare ones, but he had a lot. Everyone did back then. Mom finished the song with a flourish down the keys. I wish I could afford to buy you a charm. Your twelfth birthday is in a couple of months. I wish I could get you one, but I just can't. They're so expensive. Jeff just nodded. He wished it too, but it wasn't Mom's fault. What time do you want to eat? she asked. Six thirty, he said, standing. I'm going to go outside for a while and see if David's home. See you around six thirty, Mom said. Jeff ran over to David's, wishing he could absorb a mustard fast runner. David opened the door, munching a hot dog. Jeff had no idea how he stayed so skinny. Skinny Bones Jones was always eating. Want to go skin fishing? Jeff said. David shrugged. Okay. He pushed the end of the hot dog into his mouth, wiped a streak of mustard from his mouth, held up a finger, and ran to get his old sneakers. He put them on outside on the stoop. My mother called the school and complained about the bus driver leaving us off in front of the shoprite. David said. What did they say? They said they'd make sure it doesn't happen again. Jeff bet they would too. David's mom had a screechy voice that made it sound like she was yelling, even when she was just asking if you wanted milk with your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. When she was really mad, she could rip your eardrums. They stood on the edge of the brook that ran alongside the garden apartments. On the other side of the brook, cars whizzed by on Route three o four. Jeff counted seven carp swimming languidly among the rocks. There were probably more in the tunnel where the brook ran under Stevens Road before it continued along beside the shoprite parking lot. That's where the really big ones usually were—in the tunnel. Jeff pulled off his shoes and socks and waded into the cold water, stepping carefully, watching for broken glass. He loved to feel the power of the water rushing against his calves. The carp whizzed away toward the tunnel. David waded in after him in his old sneakers. He didn't like the slippery feel of the algae that grew on the rocks. They moved slowly, like David's cat moved on the lawn when it was after a bird, careful to avoid letting their shadows pass over the carp. Jeff got behind a pretty big one, eased his hands into the water so they didn't eat, cause even a ripple, then stayed frozen like that, bent over, letting his hands drift toward the carp. When his hands were on either side of it, he closed in slowly, slowly. Then grabbed it. The carp thrashed, surging forward. But Jeff held tight, pulling it out of the water and holding it up triumphantly. He felt the muscles in its side flex powerfully as it struggled. Let me see, David said, wading over. He held the tail straight, looked it over. I'd say a six. Okay, Jeff said. He thought it was more like a seven. He spread his legs, tossed the carp underhanded up and away. It hit the water with a splash and swam away, flashing silver in the sunlight. Let's try the tunnel, Jeff said, leading the way. Maybe the ten is in there. He'd almost caught the ten a couple weeks ago, had it by the tail, but it yanked free. Jeff ducked his head, went under the bridge, feeling the little thrill of fear he always got as he shifted from sunlight into the tunnel's semi-darkness. It was cooler in there and damp. 
The concrete overhead rumbled each time a car passed. His eyes adjusted to the shadows, and now he could see three carp drifting among a cluster of rocks near the tunnel wall. Jeff crept over with David right beside him. The ten wasn't there, but there was a big one, a definite eight, even by David's standards. As they closed in on the eight, it waggled its tail, drifted closer to the wall, then closer. It disappeared behind a big rock pressed close to the wall. Damn, David said. That was a big one. Jeff tried to flush it out, but the crack between the wall and the rock was too small. Come on, let's see if we can move it. He reached alongside of the rock, found a good handhold. David grasped on the other side. They counted to three and pulled. The tunnel echoed with their grunts. Even in the semi-darkness, Jeff could see David's face grow beet red. Jeff planted one foot on the side of the tunnel and pulled harder. The huge rock shifted, kicking up mud into the water. Pull! Jeff groaned. David grunted louder, a long guttural howl. His eyes squeezed shut. All at once, the rock tumbled over with a splash. David and Jeff whooped, exchanged a high five. They bent, hands on knees, straightening to spot the eight. The water was cloudy, but the mud settled quickly with the help of the current, exposing a black fissure at the base of the wall. The eight must have gone in there, David said. I bet that's where the ten hides too, Jeff said. He bent on one knee. The water soaked the end of his shorts, but he didn't care. He tried to peer into the crack. It was too dark. We could bring a flashlight, David suggested. Jeff looked at David. Or one of us could stick a hand in there and feel around. David broke into a grin, shaking his head no. Jeff burst out laughing. I know, it would be creepy to stick your hand in that hole not knowing what's inside, Jeff said. He took another look in the hole and looked back at David. What? David said. You dare me? Jeff said. David let loose with one of his wicked laughs, the laugh he laughed when they were thinking of doing something that might get them in trouble. No way, you wouldn't. You dare me? Jeff asked again. David looked at the hole. Yeah, I dare you. Jeff rubbed his hands together. Okay, I'm going to do it. He got himself positioned close to the opening, reached forward, stopped with his fingers just inside the dark opening. He laughed. That's creepy, man. He took a deep breath. Okay, I'm really going to do it. He stuck his hand into the hole. It's deep, he said, reaching his arm in further and further to the elbow, then to the bicep, his heart pounding. He felt a jagged stone and mud reached in until his shoulder was pressed against the concrete wall. He felt around, bracing himself, not wanting to be startled if his hands hit one of the carp. His fingers brushed against something smooth. He went back, waggled his fingers until they hit the smooth thing again. It wasn't a rock. What is this? Jeff said. He pushed his shoulder deeper into the opening, pedaling his fingers, looking for purchase. Be careful, you'll get your arm stuck. David said, hovering over him. There's something... Oh! He knew what it was, or he thought he knew. He hoped. Please, oh please, oh please, he said as he dug the smooth ball out of the mud. What? What is it? David said. He felt it break free, made sure he had it firmly in his hands, afraid it would drift away, afraid it would be gone like the bobcat in his dream. He paused a moment, wondering if this was a dream. He felt the cool water soaking his thighs, his ribs, the seat of his pants, confirming it wasn't. He pulled the sphere out of the hole. Oh my God, David said. Jeff held it close to his face. It was navy blue? It was hard to tell in the tunnel. Navy blue was athletic, or was a good whistler. Good whistler. Not rare, but still, it was a sphere. He'd found a sphere in the wild. Jeff sloshed out of the tunnel into the daylight. He rinsed the sphere in the stream, spinning it around, rubbing the caked mud off the bottom half. What color is it? David said, leaning in. Navy blue? That's good whistler, isn't it? I can't believe you found one. I can't believe it. Jeff looked close. Is it navy blue? It's almost. But isn't it a little darker than navy and a little purpler? I've seen many navy blues on display at the charm store. Let me see, David said. Jeff handed it to him.
Jeff held it up to the light, turned his head from side to side. It's got to be navy. What other color would it be? It's not plum. It's got to be navy. David handed it back to him, let out a squeal of ragged excitement. They charged up the bank and ran home, with Jeff holding the sphere high, shouting, Look what I found! to everyone they passed. He charged up the staircase to his apartment, shouting for his mom at the top of his lungs. She burst through the door, looking alarmed, then relaxed when she saw he was okay. I thought you were hurt, she said. Look, look what I found! He held out the sphere. Mom's eyes got big. Oh my God! She took it, cradled it in both hands. Where did you find it? In the brook tunnel, David said. Mrs. Massey... The old lady from the apartment across the hall came out, brushing aside a fallen pizza parlor flyer with her foot. Oh, dear, she said. What have you got there? Is it navy blue? Mom asked, her eyebrows nodding. I don't know, Jeff said. I don't think it is. But what is it, then? Mom said. I don't know, Jeff said. It's got to be navy blue, David said. Mrs. Massey squinted at it. I don't think it's navy. Hold on, Mom said. She disappeared into the house, came out carrying her keys. The charm store is open until seven. They'll know. Can I come with you? David asked. Go tell your mother where you're going first, Mom said. David took off down the stairs, his bony knees bobbing. He was standing by their car, breathing hard by the time Jeff and his mom got downstairs and out the door. David was fast. The bell jingled on the charm store door as Jeff pushed it open. He approached the counter with David at his elbow. His mom hung back by the door. The charm guy was at the far end, unpacking staffs from a long box, a cigarette in his mouth. Excuse me, Jeff said. The charm guy pulled the cigarette out of his mouth and exhaled smoke. What can I do for you, sport? Could you tell me what color this sphere is? He held it up. The charm guy opened his mouth to answer closed it. He squinted at the sphere, looking puzzled. Let me see it. The guy looked at it closely, scratched at it with the fingernail, then put it down. You found this in the wild? he asked. Yep, underwater, in a tunnel, Jeff said. The guy squatted behind the counter, brought out a big spiral-bound notebook, and opened it on the counter. The laminated pages had rows and rows of colors. With practice eased, he rolled Jeff's sphere across the rows on a page of blues, testing it against the different shades and hues. He stopped on the one that matched perfectly and read the text below it. Is it a good one? David asked. The guy nodded. Yeah, it's a good one. He looked up at Jeff. Tell you what, give you four hundred for it. His mom and David both screamed with excitement. Jeff couldn't speak. His heart was hammering, the words echoing over and over in his head. Give you four hundred for it. Mom grabbed his shoulders and shook them. I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. What does it do? Jeff asked the charm guy. He retrieved his cigarette, took a puff. His hand was shaking. I don't know, he said. Smoke drifted out of his nose. Jeff looked at his mom. He didn't know. That's how he made his living. What do you mean? What does it say in the book? Jeff asked. It doesn't say. Look, I'll give you five hundred, he said. That's a very fair price. Can we look at the book? Mom asked. The guy swept the book off the counter. This is dealer-only information. I can't share it with anyone, but I can tell you it's rare, and I'm offering you a fair price for it. Jeff took the sphere off the counter. I'm not ready to sell it yet. I just wanted to know what color it was. He turned toward the door. Hold on, the charm guy said. Look, I'm not supposed to share dealer information with you, but I'm going to do you a favor. He raised his finger. I only hope you remember that when you decide to sell it. Jeff nodded. What you have here is a midnight blue. I don't know what it does because nobody knows what it does. Because until now, there was only one known sphere in existence to go along with one staff. You found the rarest sphere on earth. Jeff looked at his mom. Her mouth was wide open, her face frozen. David looked like he'd just stuck his finger in a light socket. They all started to jump up and down and scream at the same time. They thanked the charm guy and ran to the car. 
Jeff couldn't wait to tell every single person he knew. Jeff raised his hand as soon as Mrs. Pardo settled the class down. He begged her to let him do a show-and-tell, even though they weren't supposed to have show-and-tell today. After a few heartfelt pleases, she relented. Jeff sprung from his desk and went to the front of the class. He leaned against the blackboards, hands behind his back, and began to tell them about the sphere he found. Where is it? Kim asked from her seat in the front row. My mom brought it to the bank this morning and put it in a safe deposit box. She said it was too valuable for me to bring to school. Yeah, right, Cindy said. You're such a liar. I am not, Jeff said. I found a midnight blue, the rarest sphere on earth. It's mine and it's in the bank. Jeff, are you sure? Mrs. Pardo said. I'm sure you're not lying, she shot Cindy a look. But maybe you're mistaken about the color? There was a knock on the classroom door. Mr. Manano, the principal, stepped into the classroom in his white shoes. He always wore white shoes. Mrs. Pardo, can I see Jeff Green for a minute, please? Jeff headed for the door. I understand you found something pretty exciting yesterday, Mr. Manano said. That's right, Jeff said. A midnight blue. He glanced at Cindy and Kim. He wanted to drink in this moment. Both of them were staring at their desks, trying not to look jealous. That's marvelous, Mr. Manano said. Jeff followed Mr. Manano down the hall, not sure what to say. He'd never talked to the principal before. He was surprised Manano knew what he looked like. Your mom is here to get you, Mr. Manano said. Some people want to talk to you. Manano looked at Jeff and smiled. Do you realize what you've got? I don't know. I guess so. They passed a water fountain. Jeff was dying to get a drink, but felt funny about making the principal wait. He spotted his mom through the glass wall of his office. She waved, met him at the door. She gave him a big hug. The phone's been ringing off the hook since 8.30, she said. A man from the New York Times wants to interview you, and a girl from the Journal News. And a collector called. He wants to buy the sphere. He said he'd make you a very good offer. She squeezed Jeff's hand. This is so exciting! Oh! She pulled a piece of yellow paper out of her purse. And you got a telegram. A telegram, Mr. Manano said. Wow. Jeff looked at the slip of paper. Very interested in making offer on your sphere. Do not sell before talking to me. Carl Branson, 011-221-343-9988. Call me collect. There was a TV news van waiting outside their apartment. Jeff answered questions into a microphone with a camera pointed at him, then went upstairs to do interviews with the newspaper reporters. He had pictured the New York Times guy wearing a suit with a fedora, but the guy had long red hair and a beard. The girl from the local journal news was in her 20s and pretty, with short brown hair and big round eyes. Jeff felt a little tongue-tied during that interview. The phone rang the whole time. Mom took messages. After the girl from the journal news left, Jeff told his mom he wanted to go back to his room for a while before he started calling people back. His head was spinning, and he needed time to think. He settled into the stuffed chair by the window, his favorite spot. He put the sphere in his lap, set aside the book he checked out of the school library before coming home. His baseball cards, all of his best Mets, were propped along the paint-chipped windowsill next to a stack of Marvel comics and an old photo of his grandfather singing in a bar, his arms spread and his face pointed toward the ceiling. Everyone got to have powers of some sort back then. Now only rich people did. He opened the book, Charmed Champs, and leafed through, reading the picture captions. Only 27 complete hot pink flyers had ever been found, and all but two had now been absorbed. Eighteen of the people who had absorbed them were dead. There was a picture of one of the guys who was still alive, a billionaire who owned an oil company, who also had skin that's hard to puncture, dulled pain, enhanced sight, taste and smell, and see in the dark. The guy had quit his oil business and flew around rescuing people all day, like a superhero. Jeff picked up his sphere, ran the thumb along the smooth curve. What did it do, he wondered. Usually the rarer the charm, the cooler the power. So what power would you get from the rarest charm of all? 
Would you live forever, or at least a very long time, or cure sick people just by touching them? Why did rich people always get to absorb them? The Cindys and Kims and their parents who spent their lives rubbing it in that they had powers and you didn't. It wasn't fair. Maybe he should leave his sphere in the safe deposit box, and once he was out of school, he would work and save as much as he could until he had enough money to buy the other two parts of the charm. Why shouldn't he get to have a power? If he sold the sphere, he'd have enough money to buy a few powers, but not the midnight blue power, not the best power in the world. Even if he never got the other two parts of the midnight blue charm, if he kept it, there would always be something special in his life. He would be the guy who owned the Midnight Blue. Maybe he could be on the Johnny Carson show and tell the story of how he found it while Johnny held. He put the book on his bed and went back into the living room. Mom, what if I decide not to sell it? What if I held on to it for a while? She was making an egg salad for dinner. She stopped, put down the fork. It's up to you, Jeff. You found it, and no one can tell you what to do with it. He thought about that. But if you wanted me to sell it, I would. I want you to do whatever makes you happy. If you decide to keep it, you can always sell it later. She spooned a dollop of mayonnaise into the egg salad. But I think you should at least hear what these people are offering so you know what your options are. True. Jeff glanced at the kitchen clock. School would be out in 20 minutes. I'll call them back tonight after dinner. He went outside and sat on the stoop until the bus pulled up. Hey, there's Jeff, Ricky shouted. Hey, Jeff. Everyone headed toward him. They asked him how much he was going to get for the sphere and if he was going to be on TV and where he found it and if he would give them some money. Jeff felt like a movie star. Show us where you found it. Do you think there might be more in there? Craig Alamey said. Craig was in fifth grade. I felt around pretty good in there. I don't think there were any more. But I'll show you the spot. Jeff stood, brushed off the seat of his pants. Look, David said, pointing in the air. A man flew by, skimming the treetops. Jeff had never seen a person flying before except on TV. What was weird about it was that he made no sound at all. He just drifted by, passing over the parking lot until he disappeared over the rooftops. Wow, cool, David said. He must be looking for you, Jeff, Ricky said. Me, Jeff said. Why? Then it fell into place. If the guy could fly, he was rich. He was here to buy the sphere. Of course. Jeff's heart began to thud. A moment later, the guy appeared again, slowed, landed in the grass right beside him. Jeff recognized him, the billionaire in charm champs who had absorbed all those great charms. He was tall with blonde hair, neatly parted despite the flying, an overly square jaw and big white teeth. It wasn't listed in the book, but Jeff would bet that he'd absorbed a Viridian better looking. Would one of you boys be Jeff Green, he said. Three or four kids pointed at Jeff. They stared at the flying man like he was Mickey Mantle. Hello, Jeff. I'm Carl Branson. I sent you a telegram this morning. He was wearing a shiny tan jumpsuit with a V-shaped collar. It wasn't a superhero costume, but it wasn't what men around Jeff's town wore either. Oh, yeah. Jeff pulled the crumpled telegram out of his pocket and held it up. It would never have occurred to him in a million years that it was from the guy in the book. He was uneasy about this. He didn't want to be intimidated into selling the sphere, and this man seemed like the kind who could be pushy. Do you have any other powers? Ricky asked. I sure do, Branson said. He looked around, picked up a bottle lying near the stoop shattered it against the apartment building's brick wall, and retrieved a jagged shard of glass. Careful now, he said, handing it to Ricky. Branson held out his arm, palm up. Go ahead, try to cut me with it. Ricky didn't hesitate. He dragged the nasty-looking piece of broken glass along Branson's forearm. It left a little pink mark, but nothing more. The kids oohed and awed. Can I have a ride? David asked. Branson cocked his head and considered. Maybe I have time for one. Then I've got business to discuss with my friend Jeff here. He lifted David under his arms and flew straight up, then around the band of pine trees out near Stevens Road. David was laughing his, this is fun but scary, laugh, usually reserved for when the carnival hit town and for sledding on the steep part of Lucille Hill. 
Branson put David down, ruffled his hair, and turned to the kids congregated on the sidewalk. There were about 20 of them now, kindergartners to high schoolers. That's all for now, kids. A series of disappointed groans lit the air. Branson raised his hands. I may have time for a few more rides after I've spoken with Jeff. He turned to Jeff. Can we talk inside? Sure, Jeff said. He led them into the hallway. I just flew in from Ireland, Branson said as they climbed the stairs. When you didn't respond to my telegram, I thought it best that we talk face to face. I don't mind talking, but I don't think I want to sell the sphere, Jeff said. No offense, but I think I should let you know that now. Jeff led Branson into their apartment, introduced him to his mother. Branson didn't want coffee. The three of them sat in the living room, Jeff and his mom on the couch, and Branson in the rocker across from them. Branson and his mom talked for a few minutes about raising kids. Then Branson remarked that Jeff seemed like a terrific boy, and Jeff's mom agreed that he was. Then Branson turned to Jeff. So, Jeff, you were saying outside that you weren't sure you wanted to sell the sphere. Can you tell me why? Jeff looked at his hands. It was unpleasant to look Branson in the eye. His eyes drilled right into you. I don't know. I just want to hold on to it, he shrugged. Maybe one day I'll have enough to buy the whole charm. How old are you, Jeff? I'll be 12 in June. The thing is, Jeff, I own the other two pieces of that charm. I can't foresee a situation where I would ever sell them. Branson looked at his mom. Mrs. Green, would you mind if I talk to your son alone? Jeff's mom looked at Jeff. He shrugged. He didn't want her to leave, but he felt uneasy saying no. I'll be in the kitchen. Jeff, you call me if you want me. Jeff nodded, and his mom went the ten steps into the kitchen area where she could probably still hear what they were saying. Jeff, I'm 44. That's only about 30 years older than you, and I plan to live a long time. Jeff wondered if Branson somehow already knew what the charm did. It probably did make you live longer. So if you don't sell me the sphere, it's not going to do you much good, and I guarantee you nobody's going to offer you more for that charm than me. Do you believe me, Jeff? Yes, I do, Jeff said. Let me make you an offer. It's the best offer I'm ever going to make to you. Do you believe me when I say that? Jeff nodded. Good. If you turn it down and I fly away, I won't be as generous as next time. And there will be a next time, I promise you that. The sphere isn't doing you and your mom any good sitting in a safe deposit box. Branson leaned in close and lowered his voice. Jeff, have you thought about your mom? Wouldn't it be nice if she didn't have to work as a secretary anymore? Wouldn't you like to buy her a little store or something? A store, Jeff said. Mm-hmm. That's right, Jeff. A little store on Main Street and a house. You could get out of these apartments. You could have a little pond in the backyard, buy yourself a few nice charms, athletic, enhanced vision, maybe an animal charm. Jeff's head was spinning. How much would all that cost? He had no idea, but it had to be tens of thousands of dollars. How much money are you talking about? Jeff asked. Branson smiled. Now you're talking my language, Jeff. He kept his voice low. In the kitchen, Mom was sort of stacking dishes, but mostly just standing there with a dish towel. Here's my offer, and keep in mind, it's non-negotiable. $700,000. The world disappeared for a moment. Everything broke into a million little gray dots and went black like they did on a TV screen. Then they pulled back together, and Jeff was still sitting in his living room across from Mr. Branson. His hands were tingling. His fingertips curled involuntarily. A million, Jeff said through numb lips. Branson let out a warm, easy laugh. <laughs> You're something else, you know that? I offer you a fortune, tell you it's my best offer, and you counter. You're a smart kid, Jeff. He clapped Jeff on the knee. Very good. No one's first offer is ever the best. Tell you what, I'll meet you halfway. 850. That was probably more money than Kim and Cindy's parents had combined. He was rich, he and his mom. You've got a deal, Jeff said. Branson held out a hand. Jeff shook it. I can arrange to have a cashier's check by the end of the day, Branson said. 
Can you get your mom to take you to the bank to withdraw the sphere? Sure, Jeff said. Branson stood. Your son drives a hard bargain, Mrs. Green, but I think we've finally made a deal, he said. I'll be back at six to take care of the details, if that's all right with you. Jeff's mom said it was. They walked him to the door. Can I ask you for one more thing, Jeff said at the door. As long as it doesn't cost me any more money, Branson said, laughing. No, I'd just like to be there when you absorb the charm. I want to see what it does. Branson nodded. Fair enough. How much, his mom asked as soon as she shut the door. Jeff grinned. You're not going to believe it. More than 10,000? He nodded. His mom gasped. 20? She said. A little higher, he said. 25? He pointed his thumb in the air. Higher? Tell me! He paused. Mom waggled her fists impatiently. Eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Jeff watched his mom's eyes get bigger and bigger. She screamed and grabbed him and spun him in a circle. We're rich, Jeff said. Jeff pressed the sphere against his cheek, then kissed it. It was hard to believe that he'd found it only yesterday. It hurts to give it up, even for a fortune. He'd be rich, but not special. You don't get on the Johnny Carson show for being rich. Branson was the one you'd get to be on Carson now. He heard footsteps on the stairs, went and opened the door. Branson was carrying a long case. He was with another man who was carrying a folder. The man was a lawyer. He had Jeff and his mom and Mr. Branson sign some papers, and then he handed Jeff a check, and Jeff gave Branson the Midnight Blue Sphere. Branson accepted it with two hands and a little bow, like Jeff was giving him communion or something. Money means nothing to me anymore, he said, gazing at the sphere. I live for these, for the powers they give. Do you know I have more rare powers than anyone on earth? No one answered, but Branson didn't seem to be looking for an answer. He reached for his case. It's time to see what we have. Do you know what it does? Jeff asked. I have no idea, Branson said. He took out the other two pieces of the charm. He fit Jeff's sphere onto one end of the staff and then the other sphere onto the other end. Why don't we find out? He took a deep breath, closed his eyes, and grasped the staff with both hands. Nobody moved. Nobody even breathed. Outside, a couple kids were shouting. A dog barked in the distance. Branson frowned and opened his eyes. Strange. I don't feel what I usually feel. It feels different? Jeff asked. I don't feel anything. I don't sense the new charm inside me. A dud. Jeff wasn't going to say it out loud. Was it possible? Duds were always commons. None of the rare ones were duds. They waited. There was some sort of commotion outside, people shouting back and forth. Maybe you just don't feel it with this one, Mom said. Maybe, Branson said. Jeff couldn't help but hope it was a dud. He folded the check in half and slid it into his back pocket. As they used to say when he was little, no backsies, a deal was a deal. Jeff's mom looked toward the window. What's going on out there? It was getting loud. People were shouting and screaming like there was a fire or something, only they didn't sound scared exactly. Jeff heard a woman shout, On the roof! A kid was shouting something Jeff couldn't understand. It sounded like Ricky. They went to the window and lifted the blind. There were twenty or thirty people outside in the fading light. Some were running, some were on their knees, peering underneath cars in the parking lot. Jeff recognized Ricky's black sneakered feet poking out under the hedges. Sherry Underwood was cradling something, running towards the door of her building. She shifted her load to the other hand to open the door, and Jeff caught a glimpse of what it was. Two spheres. It was too dark to tell what colors they were. I found one, Ricky shouted. He clutched a sphere, maybe a burnt orange laugh easier over his head. Oh my God, Jeff's mom said, peering over his shoulder. What's going on? Where did these come from? Branson edged in, shifting to see. He gasped. Jeff put his hand on his back pocket over the check. I guess we know what the midnight blue does, Jeff said. He stepped away from the window. He was dying to get outside, but he didn't want to be rude. I guess we do, Branson's lawyer said, staring out the window. I guess we do.
Reproduction, Branson said. He sounded like someone had just died. The rarer ones would be better hidden. Jeff shifted from foot to foot, impatient, running through the likely hiding places that others wouldn't think of. It would be pitch dark in a half hour. He needed to bring a flashlight. I'm going to go outside and take a look, Jeff said. He held out his hand. Mr. Branson, it was good doing business with you. Branson shook his head. His forehead was sweating. I wish I could say the same. Jeff grabbed the flashlight in the kitchen drawer, bolted out the door while his mom said goodbye to Branson and his lawyer. I'll be home late, Mom, he called as he closed the door behind him and hit the stairs running. Things were fair again. Jeff threw open the hall door and drank in the waning light, the chirp of crickets. He leapt off the stoop. One day, he was sure he would fly off it. And that was our story. Fun is a subjective term. I know some authors are frustrated by our desire to publish fun stories. Fun doesn't have to mean humorous, necessarily. It doesn't have to mean a happy ending, or a story without adult themes. Although if you listen to Escape Pod at all, you already know this. But if you wonder what we consider a fun story, Midnight Blue is what I consider the epitome. It was fun without being slapstick, it was heartwarming without being saccharine, and it had a happy ending without being happily ever after. I think it's stories with over-the-top humor or people thinking that blatant laughs or a meta look at science fiction tropes are fun, but that's not quite what we're looking for. Midnight Blue was a fun setting, a fun character, and an ending that was well foreshadowed and yet I didn't see it coming at all. That was fun. So I'm turning my plague-riddled voice off, and you get to hear Bill Peters give us some feedback for this week. Hello, faithful listeners. I'm here this week with the feedback from episode 297, Amaryllis, by Carrie Vaughn and read by Gabrielle DeCure. Amaryllis tells the tale of a future world of resource inadequacy, where fishing and other food stocks have collapsed, and their carrying capacity has been dramatically reduced. Population numbers in the societies are kept in strict control, lest overpopulation again lead to famine. The story was nominated for the Hugo Award this year. Static has said the story left me flat. The storytelling works well enough, I suppose, and we get a moderate amount of character development of the main character in her household as they gather up the courage to make a stand for their rights. But there is nothing that makes this science fiction. The story certainly isn't. A woman being bullied because of a grudge against her mother, her household encouraging her to take a stand against the bully. The setting is technically SF, but this isn't explored in detail. The story could just as easily have been set in a variety of historical settings, and would otherwise be identical. Andy C. said, This was an excellent story, real quality. It had rhythm and grace, and believable characters, an intriguing background, and the way it was crafted shows what a good storyteller Carrie Vaughn is. But it is a story you either get or don't. I think the fact that it got mixed reviews here is more to do with its subject than the quality of the writing. It comes back to this perennial issues of defining the boundaries of science fiction. I've got a bit of sympathy for readers that don't think it was sci-fi. It does seem like the balance, and it is a question of balance, and the broad definition of sci-fi is tilted against the starships, galaxy, aliens, future tech strand of sci-fi. So I'm guessing the Escape Pod team might answer that by saying they judge the work that comes their way on its merit, and if they get some excellent starship stuff, they'll use it. And me, talking, Bill, here. Um, yeah, we have mentioned in the past, but you know, it's hard to find really great space opera that, you know isn't something you've read before um i personally think that you know that this is a good story in a science fiction setting that is well crafted to explore the setting and what it actually means on human interactions in a science fiction world so you know it fits pretty squarely in the science fiction bullseye for me but you know everyone is going to have a different internal idea of what good science fiction is or what science fiction is 
and we're just trying to bring you the best stories we can find that fall within that rubric. Well, I don't really expect, and I don't think Murda's either, that every story we bring you is going to be your platonic ideal of science fiction, because, you know, that would be impossible. Anyway, next week I'll bring in the feedback for episode 298, The Things. Until next week, goodbye. We'd like to remind you that Escape Pod is a pro-paying podcast, which means we pay our authors five cents a word for new stories and three cents a word for reprints. This also means that we need donations from you in order to do this. If you would like to give to Escape Pod or Pseudopod or Podcastle, which are our sister podcasts, you can go to anyofthosenames.org and give via PayPal. We appreciate anything that you can throw our way. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or charge for it. All other rights are reserved by our authors. Escape Pod is edited by Merle Lafferty, with Bill Peters as assistant editor and Matt Weller as producer. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. So that was our show for this week. Our quote is from Mark Twain. Lord, save us from a hope tree that has lost the faculty of putting out blossoms. Thanks for listening. Have fun, and be mighty. Be mighty.